0: Turn, take your seats, please turn your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. It's page 1011 in the Black Pew Bible there in front of you. We pick up where we left off in James chapter 1, starting in verse 9. James the apostle, the brother of Jesus, says "Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. At family gatherings like Thanksgiving or Christmas, there are two subjects you're not supposed to talk about, religion and and politics. And in polite church company, there are two things you're not supposed to talk about, sex and money. And James isn't talking about sex. You know, like your crazy uncle who's unafraid at the dinner table to go into religion and politics, Pastor James is unafraid to quickly apply the gospel to the way we think about our money. James has been unabashed, He comes out hot and heavy as soon as verse 2, saying, count it joy, your trials, your temptations, the hard things in life, count them joys. And he he doesn't let up at all. He goes on to explain his goal for his letter. That is namely to help us to be complete Christians, uh, mature in our faith, lacking nothing. He explains, you know, uh, the thing you're lacking if you're a Christian most likely is, is wisdom, uh, to have the, the mind of Christ in you. He says, if you're lacking that, well, pray for it, he says in verse 5. Even more fundamental than wisdom, though, to the complete Christian, of course, is, is faith. How are you going to ask for wisdom if you don't even believe in the God you're asking to? And how would you begin to commit to that God if you hadn't committed fully? You can't be double minded. That's where we left off last time in verse 8. You can't be unstable. No, the complete Christian, James's goal, my goal, your pastor's and elder's goal for you, he is someone, she is someone who's applying the gospel, the way of Christ, the, the revelation of God to every part of our lives, and our wealth, of course, is included. No Christian is complete who hasn't thought about how their faith applies to their finances. The wisdom of God, the way of Christ, needs to be applied, perhaps most fundamentally, to our money. We need wisdom for our wealth. And so James instructs us, with I'll summarize with three points, three ways in which he wants us to think about our money. First is he wants us to think spiritually about our money. Secondly, he wants us to think theologically. And thirdly, he wants us to think eternally. Spiritually, theologically, and eternally, about our wealth or our lack thereof, so that we might be wise and complete, mature in Christ. Now, Pastor James is speaking to the church in verse 9 when he says, Let the lowly brother exalt or boast in his exaltation. We might assume right from the beginning that. When he means, he, says, he says boast in your exaltation, he means your, your spiritual exaltation. You might know from firsthand experience that there is nothing quite exultant about poverty. I do think that's what he means when he says lowly. That Greek word could be translated as poor. It's, it's set parallel in verse 10 to the rich. I think James is a, addressing the two groups in the church, the poor and the rich. Remembering at the first century, there's there's not really much of a middle class at all. There is only the very rich and the very poor, and they're both presumably in the church together. And, and the, the, the boast word can be difficult here in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast. You know, we tend to think that's a, a word for someone who's braggartly, and that's how they're speaking. But I think it's more helpfully glossed to something like exalt or glory in your exaltation. So, I, I think a verse 9 could be more helpfully translated, something like, Let the poor brother exalt in his exaltation. Let the poor brother exalt in his exaltation. And again, there's, there's no obvious or, or simple uh, exalting in your hunger or coldness or despair of poverty, especially in a pre Christianized world, especially to uh, Christian refugees, those under the persecution in the first century who have been presumably divorced from their families and communities, those who have come out of the Jewish community and are following Christ now, James is not calloused uh, in any way to their, to their plight. Later in this letter, he'll instruct true Christians to be caring for not only their spiritual needs, but their physical needs. We'll come to that. But here in these verses, he addresses the poor brother, and we should notice that his wisdom is particularly countercultural. The world has several things it says to the poor. I might try to summarize them with two phrases. The the worldly wisdom to the poor is to either get out or get even. I do think that uh, the message of get up or get out sees lowliness or poverty perhaps as a fate worse than death. The left in this country, the the pro-abortion movement, points to uh, the fact of why abortion should be legal. Well, they would be born into poverty anyway, as if if poverty itself was a fate worse than death, as if poverty itself was the ultimate thing to be avoided, whatever it takes to avoid, lie, cheat, and steal. Indeed, we see on our television screens continually a kind of mass looting that seems to happen, and it seems like the the general attitude of the country is, well, they're poor, and so you got to do whatever you can, whatever it takes, to get out of poverty. Indeed, one of my favorite sharks on Shark Tank, Damon Johns, has a book called uh, The Power of Broke, which is not encouraging, looting or anything, but uh, the, the Power of Broke is, is clear that, hey, if you're broke, if you're impoverished, the motivation ought to be there to do whatever it takes to get out of it. And indeed, that, you know, poverty can be better to work hard. I'm not saying that, but note that that is not what James is saying. That is distinctly missing. Or the world, we might say, not only tells us to get up or out of poverty by any means necessary, whatever it takes, it also might say sometimes to us to get even. The world likes to tell the poor to get up or to get even. That's the attitude that says it's, it's not right, your poverty, it's not your fault, it's the man's fault, and you should stick it to him. After all, it's his duty to spread his wealth around, to just, just vote in this way, and you can ensure that that is exactly What happens? You have a right to be bitter and angry and protest and take what's yours. After all, the property they have isn't that stolen land. We need a revolution. Indeed, the foolishness of that worldly wisdom has been well recorded in our history books. The ideas of Marx and the policies of Lenin and Mao have led to the greatest atrocities in the history of the world in the name of communism. The goal to get even by forced government wealth redistribution, ignores the right to personal property embedded there in the Eighth Commandment, which we already read this evening. But notice that Pastor James isn't telling the poor in the church to get up by any means or to get even by any means. No, rather, I think it might be summarized well. James is telling the poor in the church, the poor brother in the pew, to think spiritually about their lack of wealth. Indeed, this verse only makes sense in light of the spiritual realities for the Christian. So, so, in what exaltation does the impoverished Christian have to exalt? By what means might he truly exalt in his exaltation? Well, if you're a, if you're a believer in the gospel, we might be able to ask you, well, where does one begin? I'll, pro- I'll provide just two examples of ways that everyone in here, rich or poor or somewhere in between, we have much to exalt in. You might say, spiritually, although not physically or visibly yet, you are, if you're a Christian, adopted into the family of God, and you are called to exalt in that. Jesus says, you've been adopted into the family of God, and now God is your Father. You are in the, the royal family of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And moreover, ask Him, because he loves to give good gifts to those who ask, he, he anticipates your needs before you even can ask them. Or as Paul explains in Romans eight, he says that we are co-heirs of God with Christ. That is the in, the inheritance of the Christian, makes you more wealthy than the wealthiest man in the history of the world could ever imagine. Indeed, he says we've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Abba, the the term of a certain endearment, even a familiarity with the Father. Nothing in all the world could make you more wealthy. Having God gives the kind of wealth that makes the richest person look like a pauper. The story of the prodigal son, one who is moved instantaneously from eating the pods with the pigs to the family with the ring on his finger and the robe on his back and the fatted calf, from destitution to exaltation. That's the story of every Christian. The story of the prince and the pauper is your story too. The, the fundamental truth in this is this. You could be the most wealthy man in the world. You could be Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Elon Musk, or have all three of their fortunes and not have Christ and be impoverished for eternity. Or you might be the poorest, most destitute, vagabond eating the bugs on the street and have Christ and have greater fortune than the richest people we can imagine." James says, exalt, poor brother, in your exaltation. Or how about the spiritual reality of of the Christian being the bride of Christ? one who is indeed married to the King of kings, Lord of lords, uh, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Hosea, the prophet, takes Gomer out of harlotry, out of the pit, out of the the side of the road, and he lifts her from whoredom, out of poverty, out of fear, and he makes her his own as an illustration of what God is like to you. To every person in this room who is made a part of the bride of Christ, who's lived a life trying to find fulfillment in everything we could possibly find, the Lord takes you from it, from that poverty, and makes you His own. A story of my fair lady is your story too. The, The lowly Christian is exalted, you see, in adoption, and in marriage, and we could continue to go. We could continue to work through each aspect or facet of the gospel, each one of the benefits we receive in Christ and union to Him by the power of the Holy Spirit today. Perhaps you're thinking, you know, that, that sounds a bit like just positive thinking, you know, kind of a Trumpian, you know, you think it, you name it and claim it, and it makes you, you feel better. And the difference between a kind of a, a doctrine of positive thinking… And what I believe James is calling to you to do here is that uh, this isn't just thinking, there is substance here. there is spiritual reality more real than anything we might touch or feel in this life. Uh, the, the Christian is always called to believe the promises of God. The whole story of Abraham and of Isaac is once again again and again, uh, they're going to have as many children as the stars in the, in the heavens and after. A hundred years, he's got one son. He's got, you're going to have all the land from there to there. As far as you can see, it'll be yours, Abraham. And when he dies, he's got enough for a burial plot. We are the people of the in-between whose faith must be sight, to trust the promises of God, the actual substance of the gospel. And this call to think spiritually about our wealth is not only to the the poor brother, but look at verse 10. It's also to the rich brother. He says, and the rich in His humiliation. We might add again that there is no, uh, in the world there is no obvious humiliation for the rich man. Uh, you know, what is the worldly wisdom for the rich man? Perhaps it comes through in some of the mantras of our day, if you, if you got it, flaunt it. After all, the economy needs you to spend it. Express yourself in your brand loyalty. Show yourself as one who is fun and adventuresome and interesting in your travel on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you deserve, after all, that extra bit of comfort and security in that neighborhood or that car or that house. Now The worldly wisdom to the rich is the antithesis of James's wisdom to the rich brother in the pew. The worldly wisdom is exalt in your exaltation, rich man. James says exalt in your humiliation. Now, what humiliation does the the rich brother here tonight in our pew, the rich brother in the church, what humiliation is he supposed to exalt in? And I would say, of course, it's not a visible or a physical one, but indeed a spiritual one. See, what the world says gives you your security, your identity, your status you must turn from and find only in Christ. This is what Jesus illustrates for us in Matthew 19 in the story of the rich young ruler. Remember, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks, you know, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus you know, lays out the commandments for him, and the rich young ruler explains, well, I've kept all those commandments from my youth. Jesus says, but one thing remains, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me and the rich man walked away sad." In other words, Jesus demands from him physically and materially in that moment what He demands of everyone spiritually. Jesus explains in Matthew 6, Jesus says, "'No one can serve two masters.'" For either he will hate the one and love the other, or will he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He's is saying, what, what the world offers you for your security, your status, your identity, your convenience, you must humble yourself from. You must see the lie that's portrayed for you, that you can find in your money, in your wealth, that which only God can provide Jesus says, as we've read even this evening, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God.'" You see, it is only the one who knows themselves spiritually impoverished, who have been humbled to the state. They know they, they have nothing by which to commend themselves unto God. It is only those who are true brothers in Christ. See, the world says, "'Exalt in your wealth.'" They want you to come to their parties and their feasts and their fundraisers. They think you've got it. The rich believe the the lie of the now that money preaches. Money says you're safe and secure and comfortable. And Jesus says, Luke 12, to the rich man, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God or rich spiritually. See, the rich exalts in his humiliation by seeing and thinking of his riches spiritually, that they contribute nothing to his status before God. They do not commend him in any way before him. Indeed, if anything, they're perhaps a liability. Jesus says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. To humble yourself as the rich brother in the pew is to be one who despairs of his wealth's value before God. It provides no status. No, indeed, it is to do what Paul says in Philippians three, to count it all loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the first thing we must see that James is calling us to do about our wealth, the wisdom for our wealth, point number one is to think spiritually about it. But we must not only think spiritually, but also secondly, we must think theologically. Because the natural question flows, you know, thinking spiritually like that is difficult. How might I even begin to think that way about, I my? Mean, I just, I think in worldly ways about my wealth. How do I begin to think spiritually? And I think the answer is helpfully answered and by thinking theologically, by seeking to answer the question of what does the whole of the Bible have to say about our wealth? What difference does, does my relationship with God make with my money? If we were to summarize what the Bible says about your own personal wealth, we could put it in a few short sentences, I think. You are but a steward. It is not your own. You did not earn it. I'll make a caveat there. And you will be judged. You are but a steward. It isn't yours. You didn't earn it, and you will be judged. Jesus uses the stewardship imagery in his famous parable of the talents. And there he seems to be particularly teaching about the gifts he's given to use for the kingdom. But there's no reason to keep the gifts including, from including our money. Indeed, if you do believe that God is sovereign, and he is, and if you believe he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he does, if you believe all things Roman tells our, Romans, Romans 12 are from him and through him and to him, then that includes your wealth. And indeed, you are but a steward. It isn't ultimately yours. And moreover, the pride of place you feel or might feel because after all, I've, my blood, sweat, and tears has earned this. You know, perhaps there is some truth in that. All the Dave Ramsey proverbial wisdom of not becoming a slave to the lender, of saving wisely, of budgeting, investing wisely, uh, counting the cost uh, in, in life, all that is true. Uh, God honors honesty and in industry, generally. But for the Christian, is there any right to have pride, to boast in, to consider it my right, what I've earned in our money and wealth? Now, Perhaps there's a rightful satisfaction and, and a good career that's been blessed by God. And, but ultimately, we know that God gives the growth. Every joy or trial falleth from above. Uh, Barack Obama famously uh, made perhaps a a bit of a campaign gaffe in 2012 when he famously said, uh, you know, you didn't build that. He seemed to be talking about entrepreneurs and the businesses they had built. It was debatable whether he was talking about the infrastructure in which those businesses depended or what he was saying exactly. Mitt Romney made a a big push of it. But, of course, um, he's partially right and partially wrong. Um, Of course... Steve Jobs built Apple, and Jeff Bezos built, you know, Amazon, and uh, building any business takes blood, sweat, and tears, and the Lord honors that. And yet also, if we're honest, we are always standing on the shoulders of our forefathers, and we're always at the mercy of God who gives the growth. So, we have to think whole Bible theologically about our wealth, We are but stewards. It is not ours. We didn't ultimately earn it, and yet we will be judged in how we use it. That is, we are responsible. Jesus says, Matthew 12, 36, we will have to give an account for every careless word. We might by implication include every dubious dollar. Jesus says, Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much is required. In the parable of the talents, the master comes home to the stewards and demands answers. So the question comes for us, how are you using what the Lord has given you? Are you stewarding it well for his glory rather than your own, for his mission? So you think, thinking theologically helps us to answer how we might think better spiritually. Once God is centered in our worldview and his his word guides what we believe about himself and about money the money becomes in right relation to him it becomes smaller in our eyes its importance fades its purpose becomes clear our place as stewards becomes apparent my mother sang to me every night turn your eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So, we must think spiritually about our wealth. We must think theologically about our wealth. And we must think about our wealth, finally, eternally, in an eternal fashion. That's really the accent of the passage, especially in verses 10 through 11. So, if we were asking, you know, why should we be thinking spiritually and theologically about our wealth? He tells us, verse 10b, he says, Because... Like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Because in the light of eternity, it's all fading away. Or as we sing, it's all gone past. The fading is there in verse ten. It, notice it, it doesn't say like like the flowers from the florist. You know, you get some good roses from the florist. It might last you a week if you're lucky. You know, but my, my children uh, love to pick the flowers of the grass, and uh, they don't last very long in a vase inside. The dandelion and the clover bouquets um, are gone in but a day. Worldly wealth, worldly wealth, is like grass flowers that wither today. You know, further, I'm old enough now that my, my heroes, athletic heroes growing up, you know, Michael Jordan or Ken Griffey Jr. or, or Allen Iverson are now really old and fat. Or even I think of, you know, you know, presidents are always a helpful illustration of fading. I think of George Bush before and after or Barack Obama, what they look like before and after. Or even, you know, as George Bush, he, he threw the first pitch at the World Series in Texas against the, you know, for the Rangers this, uh, this World Series, Game 1. And he was not the same George Bush in 2001 that stood in Yankee Stadium with a bulletproof vest and, and hummed in a strike. Now the George Bush that was there in 2023, from in front of the mound, didn't make it to the plate. No, rather, James, we might say, is reteaching his big brother Jesus' teaching Jesus tells us to think eternally. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, where things fade. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven in eternity, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For there where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Isaiah says it and Peter says it. We say it every Sunday morning. All flesh is like grass. In all its glory like the flower of the grass. You see, in exalting in his humiliation, the rich man is freed from this fading. But not only is he freed from the fading, he's also freed from the judgment. I do think that it is judgment pictured in verse 11. The, the rising sun with its scorching heat. There comes a day when the heat is applied, when the fire comes, when uh, 1 Corinthians 3, when all that's burned up is but dross. The rich man, it says, will fade away himself in the midst of his pursuits. You know, John Piper, in his famous sermon where he's speaking of the Floridians and Reader's Digest who uh, retired early to Florida and were playing softball and trolling on their boat and collecting seashells, what were they going to offer unto the Lord Look, my shell collection. No, our worldly wealth, our worldly endeavors are but here today and gone tomorrow. Lost, we are fading in the midst of our pursuits. There are only a few things that last for eternity. Jesus says to put your treasure there. Make your investments in the kingdom. Our Lord Jesus, Luke 16 he talked about money a lot. Talks, tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores You must think about your money with eternal consequences. But if you do, if you do think spiritually and think theologically and think eternally about your wealth, not only will you be freed from the fading and freed from the judgment, you will also be freed unto unity and mission. There's a, you know, the whole world is uh, obsessed with uh, unity and diversity. You know, we have DEI struggle sessions, it seems like, in every university in every big business, ways to promote some kind of unity in the midst of our diversity, to break down barriers. James presents here the truest way to have true unity, where rich men and poor men sit together before the Lord. Uh, uh, the poor man exalting in his exaltation, the the rich man humbling himself, exalting in his humiliation so they might have true brotherhood in Christ. You're freed to that if you think spiritually, theologically, and eternally about your wealth. You're, You're also freed to the mission of the church, right, which is the one great sure investment of all your time, energy, and money, that which lasts forever. See, the the wisdom for our wealth from James couldn't be more countercultural. You must think spiritually exalting in spiritual riches, being humbled of our worldly wealth. You must think theologically that we are but stewards of what is the Lord's. And you must think eternally. There is but one thing that makes you rich for eternity, Jesus Christ the righteous. Martin Luther puts it well in his hymn, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also the body they may kill his truth abideth still his kingdom is forever our father in heaven i pray that we would believe that i pray that we would think of our money our finances our time our energy all of our resources in light of eternity and light of the truth about God, in light of the spiritual riches we enjoy in Christ Jesus. Help us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.